0: Good morning, good afternoon, everybody. Um, Welcome to episode 57 of Calm Words for Anxious Hearts. Uh, For those of you who don't typically listen to this podcast, this is a podcast we started back in March when the pandemic hit in order to keep all of us sane and hopeful and theologically grounded during what felt like a really strange time. And as I often like to say, whenever we started this, we imagined A max of 10 episodes and yet here we are number 57 and because this is our Lenten series we have a series of really special guests and today um, we get to hear from and I get to talk to the very reverend Cynthia Kittredge um, the dean and president of the Episcopal Seminary of the Southwest right here in Austin and so we're going to hear from Cynthia in just a moment but um A word or two about Cynthia. Cynthia is a gifted priest. Um, She's an author, a scholar, a poet. And she has been at the Seminary of the Southwest since 1999. But prior to that, she taught at both Harvard University and the College of the Holy Cross. And she also serves as an assisting priest at the Episcopal Church of the Good Shepherd. And even though that's kind of the formal bio, um, just one personal word that I would say about Cynthia, is that for those who know her well, or even just those who have spent some time in her presence, she has a depth of humility, love, care, and wisdom that aside from just a really sharp intellect, she just has a wonderful spirit and presence. And I have a memory of when I was newly ordained to the priesthood, I was probably only a year out of seminary. And there's a a conference called Gathering of Leaders, which was a really small cohort of clergy um, invited to brainstorm and share ideas. And there were bishops there and cardinal rectors there and seminary faculty there. And somehow I managed to squeak in and I got an invite to this thing. And um, and, and it's it's it is created that way, but Cynthia was one of the presenters, and I don't remember if this was in Seattle or Colorado, but it was in one of the times when we were having fellowship that I recall a conversation with Cynthia where I experienced her just being so curious about me and ministry and so open to dialogue and wanting to hear about my life as a college chaplain and I just will never forget um, the depth of the interest and time that she gave me and and the quality of that conversation. And so to be here with you now, Cynthia, in these circumstances and to have you reflect with us and to share yourself with the people of St. Michael's, um, although I wish we were in person, I'm grateful under the circumstances we can be together. And I want to welcome you to St. Michael's Episcopal Church.
1: Thank you, John. It's really wonderful to be with you and your people. And I too remember that conversation and uh, how delighted I was to to get to know you and uh, to have been your colleague uh, for all this time since then. So thank you. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And thank you so much for being with us.
1: My reflection today is on Jesus' temptation according to Mark. Each gospel writer as you all know, interprets traditional episodes about Jesus in a distinctive way. Usually we imagine an amalgam of all these stories merged together, but the particular, even the strange details of each of the evangelists' story yield treasure for contemplation. My reflection today zeroes in on the temptation in the earliest gospel, the gospel of Mark. It is short, spare, and conveys just the essential facts. And the spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beasts and the angels waited on him. Listen again, the driving of the spirit, not gentle leading, but a throwing him out there, casting him out there. The place, the desert mentioned twice, the length of time, 40 days, and the characters, Jesus, Satan, the wild beasts, and the angels and the spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan and he was with the wild beasts and the angels waited on him. You remember that Matthew and Luke elaborate the drama in the desert and recount the verbal wrestling match in which Jesus has the final word. But in Mark, the tempting is not described at all. It is left without detail. The wilderness, also translated, the desert or a deserted place. I picture it hollow and windy and bare. I think the Chihuahuan desert is my model for Jesus desert and it's very cold. Perhaps it was all the time a silent tempting, a tempting without words, like a pantomime or a physical struggle. Satan is present as a scary, threatening presence a wordless challenge to Jesus' identity and to his sense of self and his confidence in God. Imagine the invisible, but real and intense pressure. Jesus, the beloved child of God, endures the relentless pressure of Satan, the personification of the power of evil. It is a 40-day standoff, requiring from Jesus immense strength, weight-bearing, isometric spiritual exercise, withstanding psychological pressure, an unrelenting threat that is all the more powerful and all the more painful because the blow doesn't come depression, anxiety, craving, free floating fear sustained for a long time. That's how I imagine this silent temptation. And he was with the wild beasts. Wild beasts is a rare word in the New Testament. Wild beasts are unknown to Matthew and Luke's stories of the temptation and these animals are just there there's no transitive verb to say what they are doing or what is their relationship the uh, or what is their relationship with the one they are with whether it's hostile or not they're wild beasts by nature but we are not told how they are behaving are their teeth bared by day and their eyes burning in the night? Is the lion ravening and roaring or is she lying close like a warm cat? Is the adder puffed up to strike or asleep in a coil? Do the jackals seek to feast on the child or do they hunt for prey in regions beyond? These wild beasts are creatures who are at home in the desert landscape. And the text leaves all these speculations as questions or as mysteries. In my study and prayerful reading of these mysteries, I have wondered whether the role of these beasts were as companions for Jesus. Those nocturnal creatures who watch in the darkness and who stay awake and witness the fierce pressure and resistance between Jesus and Satan. And the last inhabitant or the last visitor in the desert are the angels. The angels who served him, ministered to him or waited on him. These are all English translations of the word diakonane from which the word deacon derives. The English words have different associations. Ministered to is more archaic, elegant, and a bit clergy-like. Waited evokes a waiter, a maid, a butler, an attendant. And that's one of the things that angels are in the heavenly court is attendance. And served is general more like what we know is religious charitable service. What was the nature of the angel's service to Jesus? In the Gospel of Mark, significant words echo back and forth between and among the episodes, setting up relationships and su- suggestive resonance. Consider the word deaconame used for the first time here. Next time, it occurs in the first healing story of the mother in Simon and Andrew's house, burning with fever, whom Jesus lifts up. And she began to serve them, it says. And she ministered to them, says the King James Version. Perhaps she made them food. Later in chapter eight, memorably, Jesus explains to Peter and the others, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. There's one more time that the verb to serve is used in Mark, but it's a bit hidden because of the English translation we normally hear. It's in Mark 15, 31. At the crucifixion of Jesus, the women who from a distance are looking on at his death. These women, it says, used to follow him and served him, waited on him, ministered to him. The new RSV usually translates this, they provided for him out of their resources. They provided Money, perhaps, or food? What they have done for Jesus in Galilee is the same thing that the angels do in the wilderness for Jesus, and that Simon's mother-in-law, after she is raised, does for Jesus, James, and John. And it is how Jesus sums up his vocation, not to be served, but to serve not to be fed, but to feed, not to be assisted, but to assist. So what were the angels doing when they waited on Jesus in the desert? Perhaps they were feeding him, nourishing him. Perhaps they were sustaining his life physically while the beasts were assuaging his loneliness. Matthew and Luke tell us that Jesus fasted and was famished and Matthew and Luke do not have beasts present or angels serving. So Mark's temptation is more silent, fearful in the horrifying pressure that Satan exerts upon Jesus. But in a strange way, Mark's temptation has mysterious company and potential solace. The coronavirus pandemic that began in March of 2021 in its isolation and disruption and destruction and death with the ongoing threat of despair and depression. The pandemic has reflected the intensity of Jesus encounter with Satan in the wilderness. We haven't known how long it will last or what the world will look like when we emerge. As in the temptation of Jesus and Mark, the emptiness of the pandemic, the things we didn't and couldn't do, the people we were prevented from touching, the loss we have suffered can only be endured with courage and patient patience. patience and incessant prayer. And as in the desert in Mark, there appears ironic company, creaturely companionship of the wild beasts. And there is provision, the ministry of the angels, which does not cancel Satan or overcome evil completely but that sustains and upholds and honors Jesus until he emerges into Galilee to accompany and to heal and to feed and to serve those in need and to give his life as a ransom for many. Thanks be to God. Amen.
0: Wow. Cynthia, thank you. That was the depth. I mean, just the absolute depth of that reflection and the way that you entered into Mark's account of Jesus's time in the wilderness and made that both uniquely jesus's story and mark but also our story right now and jesus's story with us right now was um, really amazing that was beautiful thank you um i uh, am so eager to talk to you about this the first thing i want to say is i need to repent of all the previous things i've said about mark's version of the temptation of jesus in the wilderness and the um undue favor i've given to matthew and luke i mean golly mark <laughs> seems to be the richest
1: <laughs> well thank you i'm really happy that you that you uh, want to look at it again and it, it's I, I don't want anyone to be shocked by um thinking about jesus uh being fed in the wilderness but i i think i have a pretty good case to make for it uh at least in mark
0: Well, I think you do too, but also one of the things that you did in that was really point out the deep humanity of Jesus and what it means for God to be Emmanuel fully with us. Um, It made me think of the verse, I think from Hebrews, where it says that Jesus was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. And you know, for the most part, we read that verse and we take comfort in the tempted in every way as we are, but you know, today you started talking about Jesus perhaps feeling some depression and anxiety and fear. And those things we don't typically say out loud, but I found it, um, and and correct me if you were not saying that, but I actually found it uh, deeply hopeful to see Jesus's solidarity with us in the picture you painted.
1: You. You heard me. You understood. Thank you so much. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, it's a um, there's a heroic aspect to the verbal uh, sparring in Matthew and Luke, and the 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 silence and the and the emptiness of lack of detail in Mark. I think invites us into feeling Jesus' humanity in a just a different way.
0: Well, and the silence, um, one thing that that you didn't mention, but I thought of was not only is that silence present in his temptation in the wilderness, but uh, at least with the original ending of Mark's gospel, the resurrection story has the women running away, uh, basically terrified, and it's a silent ending. Mm -hmm. And um, it it actually kind of made me wonder, because Mark, on the one hand, he, I mean, and this is my my reading of Mark and I want you to, to tell me if you see it differently. Sometimes Mark just uses lots of words and he's quick and he's this, that, and the other, but he also um, knows the art of remaining silent. And it made me wonder in this moment of the pandemic, where must the church remain silent? And what must the church say? I don't know if that question makes sense, but your reflection on silence and the lack of detail made me think about that.
1: Huh. He's also silent at his trial in mm-hmm. Mark. And you know, silence in when being persecuted or when when one's on trial is a sign of faithfulness and courage in most of the biblical accounts. So there's a there's a heroism to silence as well. Yeah.
0: Because there's been so many times, I mean, I don't know if this is true for you, where I, I kind of wish I had had this reflection a year ago, <laughs> because my tendency when people are anxious, or when I'm anxious, frankly, is to fill in the silence with words, you know, when in doubt, just say something. But there's a lot about this moment that we just, you know, I mean, Job's friends sat with him in silence for a week before they opened his mouth. and. There's just so much about this past year, where maybe instead of struggling for words, maybe courage is just sitting in solidarity with the wild beasts, whatever those are for us, being silent.
1: I like that because sometimes words can be a, an attempt to escape loss or escape pain. And um, and then in the in the trying to escape, it sort of exacerbates it. Um, so I, I'm I'm thinking about that too. Is um, f- when you can't fix something or make something about victory, <laughs> silence is can be a faithful is a faithful response.
0: Yeah, and. Although, in, in and maybe not directly, but it, it also feels tied. I, I really enjoyed um, the video reflection that you shared with the parish, your, your larger talk. And one of the things that really resonated with me, which I know is true, and I know that I need to hear, and I don't want to hear, but I'm glad you said it because it's the truth, is that we don't just get to skip past the death and go to hope. I mean, you really took us there. Right in the same way that you took us into the wilderness, you know, you took us to the depression, the anxiety, the wild beasts, the need for the Son of Man to be fed, our need to be fed. Um, and the video uh, talk and the Linton series talk, we didn't just start with community, creativity, and hope. You know, we started with no. We need to actually experience Good Friday. We need to look at the death and. Uh, and I don't know if, if this is all tied together in the same way for you, um, but I think what I'm kind of intuiting is that we don't start with hope. We don't start with resurrection. We actually have to enter the wilderness. We have to look at the death. We have to grieve what needs to be grieved, to be silent where we need to be silent. And that, that seems to me to be a core piece to how you've been thinking about God, grace, and hope during a time of pandemic.
1: It is. And it's related to, to not knowing, you know, I'm, I'm in charge of a community. I'm sitting here at my desk looking out. I think of, you know, we had to make decisions in June about whether we were going to come back to class and we had to decide on how we're going to reorganize the classrooms and fix the air conditioning and, um, you know, satisfy people's desire to be formed in person. And, and I just wanted to, um, to get it right and to predict what was going to happen and you know make people happy and be responsible and it was really really frustrating because yeah. I didn't know <laughs> yeah. and um that not knowing you know I guess for me was really really hard to accept
0: I think what you just shared any leader in the, I mean, any leader, not just in the Episcopal church, I think I would just say any human being who's got a pulse in the last year could resonate with what you said. I don't think you have to be a priest or a dean of a seminary. I mean, that experience of not knowing. And what's so hard, at least for me, Cynthia, is that the, you know, our mind knows. Well, actually, the S, you know, faith isn't having all the answers. Faith is not about having certainty. You know, you and I can quote, all the people in the world during calm times about the gift of not knowing. And that's all well and good, right? I mean, we can quote Thomas Merton, we can quote, you know, the cloud of unknowing we have, and that's great until it actually happens. Right? <laughs> and then we don't like it, <laughs> or at least I don't.
1: Yeah, because it's lack of control too. We like to control <laughs> what we don't know, or, you know, this is this, this feeling of not having control. Um, has just been really hard, and this is a, a quip, but it's actually true. You know, I, I've told my spiritual director, I, you know, I'm, I say, I say, well, I'm, I'm doing really well at everything, except humanity and mortality. <laughs>
0: <laughs> everything else is fine. It's just the people uh, <laughs> I don't like and the idea of death. That's right. <laughs> if, <laughs> uh, I'm laughing. I, I, I just... like to make.
1: I like to make her laugh. That's one of my.
0: I'm laughing because it just comes so close to home. (laughs) Um, Well, okay, so now this is going to be a touchy one, but uh, it was the first thing I noticed in the reflection. So here we are, not you, but all of us, in this place where we can't predict, where we don't have control, where we don't know, and where we must rely on fellowship with wild beasts, and being ministered to, you know, being fed by God to be sustained. Um, We're told at the beginning of Mark's account that the spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness. Now, if you know something about the the Greek that, that isn't an active driving of the spirit, but it does read that way in English, the spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness. And a lot of people are thinking, you know, and we've all think, you know, why is this happening? Did God Mm. do this? Did it just happen because it happened? And so I've been thinking a lot about that. And um, I personally, and and I don't know many people in, in our circles who would ever in a million say, well, you know, God actively decided to send us a pandemic because there's lessons A, B, and C that God wanted us to learn. And then once we learn those lessons, God will remove the pandemic. And so I don't think that we, you know, I don't associate um, God's agency or God doing things like pandemics in that sort of way, and yet, and so, and, and so the other side of it is, I have felt the Spirit driving me into this experience, and I have heard God basically say, like, "This is the place where the idols get destroyed." the idol of knowing, the idol of control, the idol of predictability, the idol of looking good, the idol of being successful. I mean, I can list them all. Yes. And so there's this like tension where I don't think that God's out for a good laugh, creating us, sending pandemics just for kicks to teach us some lessons. And yet that verse of the spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness. And my experience of being driven, into the wilderness of this desert and having that be a holy thing, that seems like a paradox. And I'm wondering if that resonates with you at all.
1: I love thinking about uh, driving that way and being driven into the wilderness. Um, You know, that, that was when you take you know, Deuteronomistic theology to an extreme, that's what it is. God destroyed Israel and sent them into exile to punish them for their sins. So, and I don't, um, I think there's a lot of dangers in that type of theology, yeah. but but what I see is so valuable about it is just what you've said, that um, it's from that experience of displacement and um, yeah, displacement disorientation that new life comes and you know that's the model of course for for the crucifixion and resurrection is that that radical undoing yeah um, is is where the life life comes from Yeah. Our, our- and, and and you know, the temptation, when you when you mentioned the temptation, I, I was going to say, well, oh well, G- the spirit drove Jesus to the wilderness because he had to have practice. Um, you know, he had to have this intense ordeal that was going to precede his ministry, his vocation. Because really what happened in the wilderness what is a intensified form of what he was doing in the rest of his ministry. He was Resisting the power of evil that was making people sick and making people epileptic and making people possessed, things like that. Uh, and then his passion and death was also that kind of struggle with evil in which he succumbed. Hmm. Um, so it's, well, that's a beauty, you know, that's why I never stop thinking about the Gospel of Mark and, and this theology in which these episodes in Jesus life are, are, are connected. And, and the more you contemplate them, the more they, they offer.
0: Yeah. One of the things that I appreciate you pointed out was the theme of, um, service and, uh, the translation of the Greek where we get the word deacon, you know, the idea, you know, mm-hmm. seeing angels as deacons, you know, uh, mm-hmm. that that was an interesting image, but you really wove that through um, that, that thread really well um, through the reflection and kind of showed how it weaves throughout Mark. And it, it really made me think, um, speaking specifically of the women, where it says that they provided out of their resources. You said they provided out of their resources. And that then made me think about the mission of the church. You know, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and that. Our job as a church is not always to, well, our job as a church is not to be served, but to serve, to provide out of our resources for uh, the sake of the world. What resources do you think that the church has to offer the world right now? Uh,
1: oh, let me start with scripture. And the, it's always a good the, place. Yeah. the vision and the, Beauty and poetry and profundity of Scripture—that um, seems—that's that's number one, but that's hard because it takes a lot of, you know, I think it takes some some teaching and some some practice. Mm-hmm. The church also has you know this tradition of spiritual practices. Of attentiveness, of holy listening, of prayer, of fasting, of meditation, and those practices are invaluable um, tools for th- for not only surviving but thriving in a time of deprivation. And you know, the rest of the world is marketing them as, you know, meditation or you know the these apps and these different kinds of things and they're becoming very popular, but, but the church has taught and has practiced these practices uh, for hundreds and thousands of years. And that's a huge gift that the church has to offer.
0: Yeah.
1: The church also has a, a way of interpreting human evil and suffering and sin that is very um, accurate and diagnostic in this time of uh, political evil and political um, machinations and lies and et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's a very, um, the church has a very uh, honest and ruthless diagnosis of human evil and a more powerful account of the power of God to mm-hmm. restore humanity from that sin. I know I sound so old fashioned, Well, and, I- um, but that is so true. And, um, and, and, you know, we, we read the papers and we're trying to figure out what's happening We're you know, it's like, Oh, people are so bad. You know, what's, how can I stand this? And, and, and the, the church has a, has a, a narrative that we can step back from that and and make sense of it. And it it really is a is a powerful instrument of interpretation and, and, and living in the times we're in, I think.
0: Well, Cynthia, you say, you know, and I, I know why you said it, you know, I sound so old fashioned, but um, I think what I'm hearing you say is that what the church, I mean, in, in saying all this, that maybe that what the church can offer is a recovery and a reoffering of just, you know, the, the, uh, an account of human nature and sin. And I think that we have shied away from that um, for a while, perhaps for, for good reasons that you know, maybe you have a whole generation of people who have been told that sin is a particular thing, that it's individualistic, that God is concerned with a list of behaviors, that they have broken those behaviors, that they are therefore, you know, deeply flawed and unworthy of God's love. And people just have this idea of sin and condemnation and um, kind of a a wrathful mean God just kind of all wrapped up. So maybe we said, well, let's just stop doing that. Let's, let's just not mess with that doctrine for now. But of course, that's never been an orthodox understanding of sin, nor is it a biblical understanding of sin. And what I think I'm hearing you say is, you know, maybe we could actually recover that and that the world might be ready to hear because their current models for understanding what's happening in our world aren't really accurate and doing them any good.
1: Agreed. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, okay. I'm going to ask you, um, uh, two more questions. Um, one is, um, uh, talking about the, the temptation of Jesus. Um, and you talked about it being a silent temptation and a wrestling. Um, I'm wondering if you'd share with us, um, what has that been? Uh, if you're willing, what has that been for you this last year? What's what is the temptation, the silent thought or the fear that keeps creeping in that you have to say, "No, um, that is not accurate, but it's just that nagging temptation this this last year?
1: The, the temptation for me has been despair and depression. yeah, uh, trying to just when I think, um, you know i'm I'm accepting, well, you know, that school's not gonna start in person. Uh, and I, and this is, and this sounds so selfish and it, I, it is, I mean, I'm talking about myself. Um, then I learn that, you know, Magnolia Cafe is closing for good. Mm-hmm. And I think, okay, that's okay. I can, I can, I can adjust to that. And then, um, you know, a, a wedding of close friends is canceled. Or postponed, or um, you know, we we go to a, a beautiful place in Canada every summer, and I've been going there for 50 years, more than 50 years, and we can't go. Mm-hmm. And that was it. Took me a long time to get to that point of accepting that when you know there was, wasn't anything to do, I didn't have any choice. And I thought, well, I'll go to Barton Springs pool every day. I'll take two weeks off and I'll go to Barton Springs pool every day. And then Barton Springs pool closed. Yeah. And, um, and that was just my little world, but those losses represented a lot of things. They represented the loss of an imaginative creative um, experience that I count on having. It represented the loss of a city that, and a, way of life that I really love. It represented, you know, family relationships that are really, really valuable to me. Um, You know, what what if something happens to my mother during this pandemic? Yeah. And that's what I was, been very, very worried about it. And my daughters have been worried, what if something happens to my mother?
0: Yeah, wow.
1: And so it's it's a sense of just one thing after another, and this weight um, that could really bring me down and make me <laughs> not able to function. Yeah, and that's the that's the psychological pressure that I was speaking of in in very intense terms, in terms of the temptation. But I think that's my my version of it is just what does it matter? You know, I can't do anything. Nothing matters. It's all, it's all over. (laughs) Yeah. It's a terrible feeling.
0: It is. Oh my gosh. Well, whenever you were saying, you know, I, first of all, thank you. Wow. Thanks for, for sharing that. And just for the vulnerability of, of modeling, this is my temptation. Um, Because I know that for those who are listening, myself included, that is deeply healing not because we want you to be in pain but because it's our experience too and you know i think one of the things that christianity allows us to do as people who believe that god is one and yet three um three persons um one god is hold two things together at once Mm -hmm. uh one thing that we can hold is saying like these are the losses i've suffered And they're very real and they hurt and um, it's been painful and they make me feel depression and they're just, they're real. And then the other thing that we can hold is um, that we know that some people might be um, um, suffering a lot worse and feel gratitude, you know, at the same time. And, and we can hold all that together. And so but whenever you know, whenever you were sharing that, um, it didn't feel small to me. Um, nothing these days feels small to me mm-hmm. when I listen to the pain that people experience. Whether it's like the worst of the worst of like I'm with people who are going to die, or with their family members, uh, or um, just listening to the small losses that have added up, it all feels really, really big. And so. Mm-hmm. Um, I appreciate you sharing that because I know those listening will really benefit from that too. I I, I think, you know, because you shared, I think it would be unfair for me to ask you to share and just not to to share myself. Um, I think for me, you know, for me, I don't think the temptation has been despair. I mean, I've been tempted, I'm talking about the greatest temptation. I've been tempted, you know, to despair. I've been tempted to Um, To to do all kinds of stuff. But I think the greatest temptation for me and the reason, Cynthia, I found that your reflection both today and the one offered on Sunday was so important to me was because my main temptation has been to not fully look at this, you know, to say, I'm not going to feel anything, I'm going to march on, I'm going to make a to do list, we're going to be back by. August. We're going to be back by November. Okay. We're going to be back by April. And just, just to kind of stay on, like I'm a leader mode, but of course um, that doesn't work. And so um, thanks to people like yourself who remind me that the spirit drives us into the wilderness and that death uh, always precedes resurrection. uh, I, for the most part, not succumb to that temptation, but it's always been there for me just to, to not look at this and to distract myself.
1: Thank you John. Yeah, for saying that, for sharing that.
0: Is there anything Cynthia while you have the people of St. Michael's listening that you would like to tell them that you haven't gotten to say before um before we end our time together?
1: Yeah, I want to say just one more thing that the church has to offer which is being exemplified right here in this podcast and mm. is is the community of the body of Christ. Yeah. which really is our companionship and our company and holds us in life when we're fragile and failing. And the, you know, the community at the seminary and the community of the clergy and parishes in Austin and the the church as a whole, you know, is, has been a is a huge gift and a huge source of blessing and Um, something that's just as tangible and real in the pandemic as as it's been you know ever before so so that that sense of community is something I want to just thank you for John and um, and say to the people of St. Michael's
0: thank you that was that was so wonderful. Okay, now I was a little dishonest. I said that we were done, but there's five questions I ask every person at the end of this that are really light and um and so just a a word answer is fine or one sentence, okay? Sure. All right. Number 1, Cynthia. What are you grateful for at the moment?
1: The sunshine. After the storm.
0: Amen. Okay. Number two, what are you less sure of given your experience of the pandemic than you were um, before this pandemic began began?
1: think leadership, what leadership is.
0: Okay. Love it. Number three, is there anything that you are more sure of?
1: The truth of the Christian faith.
0: Mm, Okay. Amen. Uh, Number four, what movie, show, book, or song has brought you sanity and or peace in the last year
1: a beautiful book called how to do nothing and i've got a whole wonderful <laughs> lots of meditations about that book but check it out how to do nothing it's a sec, it's a it's a book by a secular writer about um, resisting the attention economy and uh there's a lot of parallels with christian spirituality
0: okay i'm gonna add it to the queue. definitely gonna check that one out okay final question cynthia all right when you meet god face to face what do you hope to hear god say to you
1: little girl, I say to you, arise.
0: Oh, wow. (laughs) Oh, man, that's almost bringing me to tears. (laughs) Oh, goodness. Cynthia, um, I want to say thank you, not just for giving your gift and your time uh, to me and to St. Michael's and not just for your witness, but also just to thank you for your leadership um, at the seminary. I know that the weight of leadership at times is uh, crushing and Uh, The pain of uh, having people look to you for what's coming next when it's often irresponsible to tell people what's coming next feels like an impossible situation or is an impossible situation. But um, you're doing an incredible job and you've really blessed us and hope that you can be with St. Michael sometime soon in person once um, things shift and that's possible.
1: Thank you, John. Thank you so much for this invitation and your gracious hearing and uh, building on on our conversation. Thank you.